You are listening to the Theologizing at Remedy podcast, a podcast of Remedy Church in Rock Hill, South Carolina. The design of the podcast is to help the people at Remedy Church connect theology with community, mission, and care. All right, welcome to another episode of Theologizing at Remedy. Uh, I'm Chris Miller, pastor here at Remedy, and this is also... I'm Fudd Chambers, lead pastor here. Nice to have you. We're in our uh, Remedy Church podcast studios here. That's right. Um, if we our, sound different, it's because we actually have better microphones. As yeah, I was say, we got our new new microphones and everything. Can you see them? Do you like them? <laughs> they look great. They look like spaceships that are meant to land on the moon. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about um, a teaching, an ancient teaching that's found in the Bible and all throughout church history uh, called penal substitutionary atonement. And so... That's a really big word, penal substitutionary atonement. In fact, that's three big words kind of put together. Yes. Fudd, what, what is penal substitutionary atonement? Well, I am reading from Wayne Grudem because uh, he usually explains things well. He says, the view of Christ's death presented as penal substitutionary atonement is Christ's death was penal and that it bore a penalty. So it has to do with the word penalty when he died. So there was a penalty being paid. His death was also substitutionary um, in that he was substituting for, us, for himself for us when he died. And this has been the orthodox understanding of the atonement, which is uh, when Jesus died on the cross. This is what atonement is, held by evangelical theologians in contrast to other views that attempt to explain the atonement apart from the idea of the wrath of God or payment for the penalty of sin. So it highlights penal substitutionary atonement that there was wrath uh, being put on Christ in the cross during the atonement. And so for kind of like the reason we're discussing this, some of the context of uh, penal substitutionary atonement, uh, particularly in our day today, People tend to want to shy away from uh, talk about the wrath of God and how it relates to Jesus' death on the cross, uh, or even just make it kind of one of many ways of describing the cross. Why? Why do they do that? Why do people shy away? Well, I, I think by nature it's not, you know, uh, you know I don't want to hear that there's a God who's all-powerful and has created all things and that... Something going on in my life has caused this God to literally look at me and say, I'm angry with you. And, I, and he's right. He's good, right? So he's, he's not even saying he's angry with me. He is angry with me, and he's supposed to be angry with me, mm-hmm. and he should be. Uh, so we tend to, like, shy away from that. That's not this picture of, like, this, you know, warm, fuzzy feeling, loving friend that we have in God. Um, so we need to serve God to uh, do evangelism for him. And make him um, nicer. And so we need to take away, somehow take away the wrath of God so that in our presentations of evangelism, God seems nicer. We're doing God a solid. Yeah. We're doing him a favor. Right. And so some of the, some of the argument there has been that, you know, at least one that I've heard um, is that throughout history, the church is kind of different cultures have emphasized different parts of the cross differently. So you have some honor, shame, emphasis. Uh, recapitulation, where you're reliving out the story of Israel, the story of Adam. You've got uh, the cross provides a good example of love. 
Um, you've got, uh, you know, different things like the cross provides victory over Satan, sin, and death. All these things, right, are different angles of the cross. And that sometime in the 1500s, 1600s, when the Reformation's going on, a different angle, because there, there were so many lawyers during that time, they, they tended to look at the cross through the law. Mm-hmm. And so the argument goes that, yes, it's part of the cross, but it shouldn't be the main, it shouldn't be what we call the heart mm-hmm. of the gospel, the good news. Uh, you know, and, and problem with this argument is, is it, it says that the reformers essentially discovered this. Right. Their culture allowed them to. So see Calvin this. and Luther in the 1500s discovered for themselves right. what they want to call penal substitutionary atonement. Right. And which but we, that we, it wasn't initially in the Bible. Yeah, exactly. Or, or it was, and no one had seen it at, until that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what, what we would probably say is that Calvin and Luther rediscovered it. Right. And that you can't possibly read cover to cover the Bible anywhere right. and not come across this as one of the, the main heartbeat of God's reconciling work to right. mankind. Not an addendum or some kind of later likely facet of, but the centerpiece of the gospel. Yeah, I would say like all those different theories of atonement that I just kind of really quickly covered, this gives those theories meaning. Right. Those are merely just echoes of penal substitutionary atonement mm-hmm. as a way to say it. So as, a, as an exercise to prove this, um, mm-hmm. let's, let's trace through the scriptures. We're going we're gonna to hit all of the meta-narrative scripture. We're going to hit every genre kind of going through scripture. We're going to look at Moses, so mm-hmm. the first five books, the prophets, the Psalms, the gospels, the epistles, and the book of Revelation. And we're going to attempt to give some, some passages that would make no sense if you didn't have an idea of penal substitutionary atonement. Right. And the point of this exercise is to really show that the reformers didn't discover this. This is something that is the heartbeat of the Bible right. beginning to end. Um, so I'll, I'll start us off. Okay. I'll start us with Moses. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out kind of three quick things for Moses. The entire book of Leviticus doesn't make sense if you don't have it in the backdrop of penal substitutionary atonement. The whole book of Leviticus centers around the Day of Atonement, which is literally this, this ritual where the sins of Israel are pronounced upon this goat, mm-hmm. and it's killed and slaughtered. And then the scapegoat, there's another goat that's sent out into the wilderness saying that their sins have departed from them. They've, mm-hmm. they've been atoned for. So the, the entire book of Leviticus doesn't make sense. Um, give two quick other ones. Uh, the Passover, which then becomes this feast that is every single year celebrated throughout all of scripture. It doesn't make sense without atonement. It's literally, uh, you know, the, the original Passover is uh, the final plague uh, for Egypt is going to be the death of the firstborn of animals and man alike. For anyone who doesn't slaughter a lamb and take its blood and put it over the doorpost and the, the two uh, lantels of the door, uh, and basically saying that the, the blood will cause God to pass over that house, mm-hmm. a.k.a. not uh, bring his wrath or death to that house. Right. So, it, you know, and that becomes a, a pretty controlling... And the lamb was the substitute. That's a pretty controlling storyline of the Bible. Right. Sacrifice of Isaac. Um, you've got Abraham taking his son <laughs> up, and uh, my son, the Lord himself, will provide a ram. And then when he gets to the top, right when he's about to bring down that dagger, mm-hmm. uh, God stops him provides a ram for him, and they sacrifice the ram in place right. of Isaac. The substitute for. And, and right. we know that that's clearly, I mean, that, that language is clearly pointing to, you know, a future right. substitute. 
All right. So how about how about the prophets? So well, there's a lot, but I think that you could just read one text of scriptures uh, from the prophets. Although we could go a lot of places, but this uh, this pretty much puts the nail in the coffin in the prophets. I think so. Isaiah chapter 53, where it talks about the suffering servant. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That sounds like wrath. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his, and with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Um, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us. Oh, that sounds like substitution. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and yet there was no deceit in his mouth. He's atoning for us. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He sees his offering. He shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous, that's atonement, and he shall bear their iniquities. There's no other way to, to read Isaiah 53, 4 through 11. That was 4 through 11. Besides it being penal substitutionary atonement. It's a penalty being paid. Christ is our substitute, and the atonement is through Christ. I mean, I don't, I don't know how to understand that text in and the new way. testament authors read it that way they oh, applied yeah. that passage peter applies it in uh one of his letters to uh directly to jesus and if we want to understand it then the best way to understand old testament passages is let the new testament authors inspired by the holy spirit tell us how to yeah. understand old testament passages yeah so so there's the prophets all, all right. right so how about some psalms chris yeah, let's, psalms uh so i think uh so Isaiah 53 is probably the, the clearest messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. One of the next clearest messianic prophecies in the Old Testament is Psalm 22, where uh, Jesus literally quotes it from the cross. Mm -hmm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, he quotes it from the cross, and you go back and you read through that psalm, and it starts mentioning things like they're wagging their heads at me, uh, they're they're mocking him. It mentions that his hands and his feet are pierced, and so it gives this description that perfectly applies to Jesus on the cross. And in that moment of being crucified, Jesus says, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" I think that is probably one of the clearest places in the Psalms that you'll find uh, the atonement. Mm -hmm. Another another one that I'll just read is Psalm forty nine. Uh, this is verses seven through fifteen says, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit, which is death. Uh, for he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. 
their graves and their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations. Uh, Though they called lands by their own names, man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Like sheep they are appointed to Sheol, the place of death. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form uh, shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Uh, Again, uh, clearly this idea that man is going to die and that it is it's a punishment it's something that he has to be ransomed out of he has to be bought out of and that god alone is the one who actually can provide that ransom uh, which we'll see is jesus so uh let's let's look at the epistles um the letters right the letters of the apostles uh where we, where, where where do we see uh put you know penal substitutionary atonement in the epistles um well, there's a lot of places, but the place that I'm going to look at uh, right now is is Romans. In Romans chapter three, uh, we have. Um, well, if we go to start at verse twenty-two b, he says, "For there's no distinction," um, and then he says. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we have Christ redeeming us. And then it says, whom God, and no, he's talking about Christ here, has put forward. And so he, he's put Christ forward. Um, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. This propitiation, hilasterion, is an appeasing of or uh, having wrath be absorbed by. So Christ is the wrath absorber. This Greek word um, is talking about how he is, Christ is being put forward as an, an expiating or an appeasing, appeasing um, type of person that is receiving the full wrath of God. This, there's no, under, no other way to understand this word propitiation in the New Testament other than um, God has wrath. Wrath has to be put on something, someone, I should say. And instead of us, Christ is therefore the one who steps inside or steps between and absorbs the wrath of God that was intended for us. So that's what propitiation, propitiation is here, the uh, hilasterion. And then it says that whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in God's divine forbearance, that means in his godlike patience, uh, it says he had passed over former sins. So throughout the entire Old Testament, you have all these people sinning that are still receiving grace going to heaven. And so people are wondering what's going on with God's wrath. Well, he's passing over them over the course of the Old Testament because he's looking forward to the cross. And then that's where he's going to still put forward his wrath on Jesus to cover not just the Old, the New Testament saints and us who will be saved after the cross, but also before the cross. And so it says, and to keep going, uh, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so the, 
I mean, there's lots of places we could go on the epistles, but, you know, Romans is kind of Paul's uh, systematic theology where he really writes out everything that he can write. And so he tells us that in that, that Christ is the little propitiation for us, redeeming us um, by the blood of Jesus. One other place I could read is 1 John. This is 1 John 4.10. It says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the wrath absorber. So Christ is the penal substitution for us. His, uh, his atonement was penal substitutionary. Those are two places. There's lots of places you could go about that talk about the wrath of God uh, because of our sin, but those are, those are two solid places to go. Yeah. Gospels, Chris. All right, so the Gospels. Uh, the Gospel accounts, um, I think uh, first you could start with the institution of the Lord's Supper, which then <laughs> carries forward for all the church to celebrate until hmm. Jesus' return, hmm. uh, which Jesus says, this is my body broken for you, mm-hmm. you know, my blood poured out, you know, so as a new covenant for you. Uh, in that, you know, he did that during the Passover feast. And so I, I think it's, it's, it's a good theological reflection to say that what Jesus is doing there is saying, remember this Passover feast that was celebrating this lamb's blood that caused God to pass over houses and spare people from death. This is now fulfilled in me, my body being broken, my blood being poured out. And this now, this new meal for the church, this best encapsulates the core message that you're to hold on to and to gather around. So even the church, right, is gathered around this meal. Uh, and and we see it also, uh, we already mentioned Psalm 22, right? Jesus quotes, my God, my God, why mm-hmm. have you forsaken me on the cross? Mm-hmm. Right before he goes to the cross, he has this, this prayer session, right, with his disciples uh, in Gethsemane. And uh, one of the things he says to his father, he says, uh, this is Matthew 26, 39, uh, he says, um, and going a little further, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The cup. What is the cup? Is that a cup of coffee? Yeah, see, I, you know, some people say the cup is the cross. Something great. Or, you know, the suffering that he's about to do. And I think, I think we sell it short if we stop merely at the physical sufferings mm-hmm. of the crucifixion and mm-hmm. the mockery and the beatings and all those things that mm-hmm. happen. I think that's definitely part of the cup. But think of it this way. There have been historical accounts of Christians who have gone joyfully to their death, mm-hmm. to their martyrdom. Mm-hmm. So what does it say to us if Jesus over here, our captain, right, the captain of our salvation, that's what Paul Washer kind of says uh, in regards to this. He says he's the captain of salvation. What does it say to us if our captain is sweating drops of blood and just scared out of his mind? Mm-hmm over martyrdom, but others are going joyfully. Right. So there's something more about the cup than just mere physical sufferings. Right. Uh, Jesus here, I think, is talking about the wrath of God. Yes. Uh, So to give a few Old Testament um, things here, this is Psalm 11. Um, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Uh, Psalm 75. Uh, but it is God who execute, executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours it out, 
and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And one more coming from the prophets. This is from Jeremiah 25. Uh, For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds. So he's punishing them for their works, Mm -hmm. uh, the work of their hands. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And they shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending among them. And so this cup imagery, Jesus knows the cup imagery. doesn't have positive connotations, right? What's going on here is Jesus is contemplating the full weight of what's about to happen to him on the cross. He's going to drink that cup that the nations deserve to drink for their wicked ways. He's going to drink it down to the dregs. He's going to feel the craze of it. He's going to feel the sword of the Lord's wrath. Uh, upon his own soul. And so that, that's really where I would go in the Gospels for this. So how about the very last book? Also, just, just as a, oh, yeah, let's a little thing one. to add, one little thing is, you know, Jesus is on the cross for six hours, right? Right. Um, he's received tons of beatings, and he's on the cross. Something s- clearly switches, right, after three hours. Hmm. From, from 9 to 12, sun's out. Jesus is on the cross. Everything's bad. But at noon, right at noon, yeah. it gets dark. Right. Why all of a sudden is there the cry of dereliction? And then you also... That's the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all of a sudden, it gets dark. So what is going on there, right? So the cross of Jesus, the physical sufferings are part of it. But what's the turn all of a sudden in all the surroundings, which is all historically documented, to where it gets dark, and there's the cry of dereliction. Why, why does that happen? Is it because Jesus all of a sudden's physical pain got amped up? I don't think so, right? right? There we have the mental thing which is happening, or the thing that's unseen, I should say. The wrath of God being poured out on all mankind. That should have been poured out on all mankind on Christ. All of the, the wrath for sin, waves of waves of waves of God's wrath, righteous anger poured out on Christ on the cross. And so the physical pain was one part, but the receiving of the wrath of God, I think is, so there's context behind all of a sudden, why does it get dark? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not because Jesus's pain level went up. It's, yeah. I think it's also because all of a sudden here we're having uh, the wrath of God being poured out. Um, so anyway, uh, the last is from Revelation. Is there, are there places in Revelation where this happens? Um, one of the places that, that you can look is Revelation chapter 5. If we're looking at starting in verse 6, I'll just read to verse 9. And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So we have a picture of a lamb that's slain, um, someone who had been uh, substituted in, in the place. And, and why a lamb, Fudd? Right, why a lamb? Right. Because <laughs> of all maybe, the Old Testament. <laughs> maybe something about Genesis. Um, anyway, so with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth, and he went out and took the scroll from the right hand, who was seated on the throne. So before that, by the way, everybody's just bawling because no one can open the scroll. And then it says he took the scroll and took it and when he had t- taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty living elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. No one could do that but Jesus. And said, for you were slain by your blood. You ransomed people for God. So, I mean, this is God giving his son as a penal substitutionary atonement. From every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So even in Revelation, we have uh, the language of Christ being slain, that he was ransoming a people for God, substituting himself uh, through the cross, you know, through a bloody cross. And that, that slain lamb imagery goes throughout it. And the whole book of Revelation is he got victory. How did he get victory? Well, through being slain as a lamb. Um, right. So, so again, we just looked at, we touched almost every facet of the Old and New Testament. Uh, and it's just dripping mm-hmm. with imagery that points us directly at the heart of what Jesus did on the cross. Right? He, he stood in our law place. He substituted himself for us. And the, the sins that the... The, the rightful punishment and wrath that we deserve for our sin, he took it on himself so that we could have righteousness, right? The, the great exchange, right? Mm-hmm. Martin Luther's great exchange. So let's take this and relate it quickly to community mission and care at Remedy Church. Okay. Um, I would just say the easiest way to do it is this is the gospel, Community mission care, how do I relate it to community mission care is this is the gospel. You can't do community mission and care, I don't think, appropriately inside of a church without the gospel. So take a step out of community mission and care and say, what's the gospel? This is the gospel. Yeah. Um, and so you need to know the good news in order to do community mission and care. You, in order to uh, really share the gospel effectively with people, you need to know it. So um, I would say this is the good, this is the gospel. It's not a subsection it is the the full message of christ and so yeah. uh, we should not be scared to share it not shy away from it not run away from sharing what is the gospel here's why right we just studied this this past week in second Corinthians because when you tell the gospel to people uh, for those whom are god's elect hearing this news of the anger of, and wrath of God towards them for their sin causes them to repent and come to know Christ. For those who are elect, it brings them life. For those who are not elect, when they hear this message of the gospel of God's rat, righteous anger coming towards them, then they get mad at God and they don't want, they don't want Christ. That's how to understand 2 yeah. Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. That's, th- those are passive verbs that's telling us that Christ is the author of salvation yep. among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing. And it says, from one fragrance uh, from, to one, a fragrance from death to death. We, tear the, we tell the gospel to those who are perishing, and it reminds them of death, and they repel against God. But then it says, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. So we tell the same message of the wrath of, of God, so penal substitutionary atonement, the gospel. And what do they want? God quickens their heart and they say, yes, that's what I want. God's wrath, um, I don't want. Thank you, Christ, for taking it for me. I believe, I repent, and then they receive life. That's what I would say for community mission care. It's just, it's the gospel. So don't, don't think you need to do God a solid by 
watering it down because if you talk about wrath, people might think God's mean. Like, he's not mean. He gave his son. But they need to know the bad news to fully understand and appreciate the good news. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, same thing. It, it, it is the gospel. Uh, when we think of community, well, what, what holds us together as a community? It could be like our, our likes and our dislikes and our commonality. But anytime we cross each other at that point, then we're going to go find another community. But the very heart of the Christian community, the church, is the fact that Jesus has reconciled us to God and therefore has reconciled us to each other. And so you can't do community if you don't have an understanding of what God had to do to reconcile you mm-hmm. to himself, because then it gives you the, the measure for which you should reconcile yourself to others. Uh, and that, that would be care, right? Mm-hmm. How we care for one another. Why, mm-hmm. why care for one another? Well, because God ultimately cared for us and cares. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then mission. Um, I think of Romans 10. Uh, you know, how are they going to believe if they don't hear? Well, mm-hmm. What do they need to hear? They have to hear that they need to be reconciled to God. That, that, I mean, Paul uses the first three chapters, you know, first half of the third chapter, to basically take all of people in the entire world and put them under the right condemnation of God and say, your mouth should just be shut. Your mouth should be stopped. You stand condemned. And then he takes the second half of three and he just preaches the cross. The crucifixion of Jesus, this is the solution to that problem. And so when we get to Romans 10, that's the message. Mm -hmm. We're we're bringing the bad news. You guys are rebels against God Mm -hmm. and he is angry and he will punish you. And rightly so. Um, And, uh, but he has provided a means of reconciliation through Jesus. So, uh, again, how does it relate to community mission and care? It is, <laughs> it is the foundation stone for community mission and care. Um, and when we get that wrong, we confuse people. We confuse the gospel. Yeah. They don't see the need for reconciliation. Um, so. Yeah. Read the book of Acts. Yeah. Right. How they share the gospel. Yeah. And so... Maybe just let me end one one more one more quick thing. I was thinking of like with these atonement angles, right? Yep. There's different angles of the atonement. Uh, you know, let's take one of them, the moral example theories. Like mm-hmm. Jesus's death on the cross shows us the love of God, mm-hmm. right? That makes no sense if you analyze it by itself. Okay, so he died on a cross and that demonstrated God's love. Well. If that didn't, if his death on the cross didn't do something, it just shows you. Be it just ni- shows be nice. you him dying. So, so uh, kind of a famous story. Mark Dever relates this: is a guy running off the pier uh, to jump into an ocean to show his love for his wife. He's like, "Watch this, honey. I love you so much that I'm willing to die." And he runs off the pier and he jumps off the ocean, jumps into the ocean and drowns. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we'd look at that and be like, "Dude, what are you doing? You're not loving your wife. You're leaving your wife." You just left um, her, right? Uh, so. Mark Dever then says, well, switch it around. The wife is in the ocean drowning, about to die. Husband runs, jumps off that same pier into the ocean, rescues his wife, but dies in the process. Mm-hmm. Not only does that provide a moral example, right. but it actually saved his does wife. does something. It accomplishes and, and something. And so all the theories of the atonement are great. They show different glories of who Jesus is, mm-hmm. but none of them actually mean anything if... God didn't save us, right, right. by uh, taking his own, you know, the son taking his wrath on the cross. Right. So.
all the other uh, atonement um, meanings take their ultimate meaning in penal substitutionary atonement. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was fun. That was fun. Hopefully it's been helpful for y'all that have been listening. Something maybe you've never even thought of, but just absolutely crucial in your life. So uh, use this for your own edification, and hopefully uh, as you share the gospel with others, you want to talk to them about both sides of the good news, of the diamond, the, the bad news that they were enemies of God, but also the great news that Christ is the one who bore the wrath of God the Father uh, for us so that we can be saved. Yep. Amen. All right. Well, we'll talk to you all later.